Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Well, folks, welcome to another episode of CISO Talk. I'm James Azar, your host. I've got an awesome episode coming up today. Um, so joining me in just a few moments uh, will be Prakash Siturahman, and I hope I'm butchering the last name, and I've been practicing it for like the last three, four times. So Prakash is going to have to excuse me. I do apologize, but he's the CISO over at CloudBees. But before we do that, folks, if you have not subscribed to the CISO Talk podcast, please make sure to do so right now. Follow us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Give us a five-star rating. Also, subscribe subscribe to our YouTube channel. We post new content every single day. And in fact, on Thursdays and Fridays, we double it up. So you get twice the content. So you've got enough all weekend long. You can catch our daily practitioner brief at 9 a.m. Eastern and so much more. So make sure to go right now to the Cyber Hub Podcast. And without further ado, let's bring on the CISO Talk time because guess what? That's what you're here for. Here we go, folks. From the Cyber Hub Bunker and Studio, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Prakash, you're going to have to forgive me for butchering your last name right there. You, you got it pretty close. So I, it's not, you went miles away. So you know, I've, I've been practicing, but it's, you know, it's, it's like when the camera turns on, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, you study for a test, then you sit down and you go, where's everything I remembered? It's not fair, right? Um, three years of doing the show, and, and that still happens. I do apologize, folks. Uh, Prakash is the CISO over at CloudBees, and someone I'm very excited to bring on the show today because we're all looking at cloud, and uh, we're going to get a CISO to give us some insights into what's going on there, which I'm very, very excited about. Prakash, before we get started on today's show, though, um, give our audience a little bit of background into your journey. Of, of how you became a CISO and kind of your past. I know you were at HSBC for a very long time. Um, so you've kind of uh, matured through our industry. Uh, matured is probably the right way of putting it. Uh, you know, <laughs> being around a long time is probably a little bit more unflattering way of putting it. Uh, but, you know, the, the journey is very uh, eclectic. It was it hasn't, plan, what do you say, panned out the way I thought it would or it's it's probably a stretch of the imagination to say I actually planned much of it anyway. Uh, 
you know, curiosity led me from one step to another step. So my educational background actually is in mechanical engineering. It isn't in computer science. It, um, you know, ages ago, I graduated in engineering, went and worked into refinery for some time. And what I realized right through that period is uh, computing was something that came naturally to me. Mechanical engineering was something I had to learn to do all the time. And that wasn't that much of a, what do you say, leap when I decided, well, I'm not going to be doing much of mechanical engineering anymore. Let me go focus on computing. I joined ICL. And as things would have it, my dad used to be in computing in the Reserve Bank of India uh, for his entire career. And I used to hear the words ICL. And I'd seen photos of ICL mainframes at the time and things like that. And I, by happenstance, ended up being pretty much in the same place in the company that he was a customer of okay, uh, at the time. And then I never looked back from there. And I started in development, the standard you know, journey of anybody who started in the late 80s, early 90s, where you didn't have all these differentiations between very specific roles that you had. You were the guy who did something that made an application work. And that meant you fixed network engine, you know, network switches, you fixed uh, disks when they didn't work, you wrote the code, you did pretty much everything there was. Okay. And so my, over my career, I've done pretty much everything that has been in, in IT, um, predominantly on the technology side for a for a wee while. I kind of dallied in sales, figured out I'm not pretty, I'm not very good at that either. So let's not let's not worry about sales. Can't can't make it work. So I'll do things that I'm good at, and then you start slowly focusing. I went from writing network, uh, you know, networking code to mainframe code that did billing engines to you know hospital software. And the common theme across all of this that I found is partly my nature, which is a curiosity of why things do what they do. And when you start getting into a lot of the whys, um, when you write the code, you you actually start becoming aware of what could potentially go wrong. And security is one of the first things anybody sensible asks you the question about what could go wrong. And so I've had that thread of security right through so for about 30 years, even before cyber security was a phrase we were talking about, where before CISOs were actual roles that anybody thought you needed, etc. And then I morphed from all of that into financial services, where the first thing anybody ever asks you is, is it safe? Is it secure? Is it compliant? Okay, it doesn't matter what your job in banking is. Uh, that's a paramount concern all through. Um, and I think what sticks sticks with you if you spend enough time in that industry and, and also what was very apparent to me is you have to have empathy for the end person on the street who actually uses your services or your customer services. Security is all about that. It's about protecting that chap who doesn't know and shouldn't have to know much about cybersecurity or any of those things. We are supposed to design systems, supposed to architect you know, platforms and things like that that are inherently safe and keep their data safe and things like that. So I think the evolution of cybersecurity into a niche and the role of the CISO in that space as a leader who worries about information security and drives information security is something that you evolve into. And like many other people who evolved into that role and into cybersecurity, I've done the same, you know, through digital transformation and pro pro projects, programs, etc. And I find myself 
worrying about cloud security when I was in HSBC, um, then leading cloud security um, as a as the thing scaled up and as you become mature, you realize more and more of what remains to be done. And then you start focusing on those and you start fixing those. Um, the journey to CISO and CloudBees is um, kind of a parallel to how my career has, has shifted direction over the, over the time. And in the main, I've looked for opportunities where there's this uh, chance to make a significant impact to the organization you join, to the industry at large, or to the domain that you're going to be working in. And CloudBees right now is at that segue uh, of um, how you build software itself being in the spotlight. For a long time, cybersecurity was about the perimeter. It was about the you know devices that you used. It was about the production environment and things like that. Now it's the spotlight shifted to how do you build software? How do you ensure that the software that you build is um, secure? More important, how do you assert to everybody else who uses your software that it is secure and it's okay? Um, and CloudBees is at that point in time in history when the automation of software delivery that they've been so good at is now morphing into the security domain of how do you make sure that that automation is dependable, trustworthy, robust, resilient, all those words you associate with uh, something that is mission critical and you have to you know, be confident that it's going to work and it's going to be safe and it's not going to let you down, et cetera. And we are now defining the next generation of how software automation will work, how the software supply chain will work and here I am, you know, helping CloudBees do all that, defining the next three years of how things ought to be. Because for what we face today, we're safe enough and we're secure enough. But this is about the next three years, next five years, planning for that and helping customers transition into that space. You know, your journey is is the highlight of... of... Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. All right. Perfect. I thought there was an echo there for just a moment. Apologize for everyone listening. Uh, we just want to make sure sound quality is always at its best. Uh, Prakash has a lot of wisdom to share. I don't want there to be any any any, any issues here along the broadcast. So, one one of one of the really um, one of the things that you brought up and kind of looking at your past is its diversity. And now that you're a CISO, you're kind of sitting in that role, and you're 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 really in an infrastructure type of organization. Um, when you look at the people you're hiring, when you look at team building, what are some of the skills you're looking for? What are some of the um, intangibles that you feel like are critical so that you're successful at your work, your organization is able to grow and achieve its goals, and the people are satisfied with the work they do? That's a, that's a really good question. You know, For an industry that focuses pre predominantly on do you have experience in this and do you have experience in that and can you give me a 30-page CV and things like that, um, I tend not to go by many of those accepted norms of trying to vet uh, people you want to join. My first benchmark is um, would I go out for a drink with these people? Would I go out to dinner with them? You know? Do they relate to me in terms of what I value in life and, and what what is important to me in terms of characteristics of human beings itself? And three really big things I look for. Are, first, I guess, is attitude. You know, how do people approach uh, difficult situations? Is, is the general inclination to step back 
and watch what happens? Or is the inclination to actually dive in and get stuck in and help solve the problem? Because cyber, you know, if you took a look at a CISO's job, the moment of truth is always a difficult one. Okay. When there's nothing to talk about, it's a fairly boring, uh, cybersecurity is a fairly boring, fairly dry subject. It's when it matters, you have to be able to step in and help solve problems very quickly. Uh, so the attitude matters to me. Um, this, and, and a large part of that attitude is a willingness to go over and beyond and help people who don't necessarily understand your domain, who don't necessarily care about your domain, yet you're an integral part of their success. Uh, and showboating isn't in the vocabulary of people who kind of uh, adopt that attitude to, to helping others get, get over a problem. The second thing I really look for is aptitude. Okay. A lot of what people know in cybersecurity today is probably not going to be relevant in about a year's time. Okay. The fundamentals and the principles and all those stay the same, but the technology and the threat landscape changes so fast. What is important is your ability to keep learning at a rapid pace, your curiosity to keep learning at that pace for a very long time and a very long path over a career. So look for people who have the aptitude to learn. Uh, it's what they're going to know and how quickly they can know that that matters to me more than, okay, you know, 20 years of doing the same thing. Um, and I guess the last thing I tend to look for is a sense of humor. Because again, you know, humor is one of those things that joins people, regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're from India or from China or from, you know, the US, a majority of the things that we laugh at as human beings is common. You know, we, we humor is that one common thread across cultures in the main. You may not get the joke initially, but you do eventually. And when you do, you do laugh. So, and it kind of helps build those bonds because security is about trust. And it's about trust between human beings and trust between human beings and the systems other people provide. And if you got one of the easiest ways to build trust is to find people that share a sense of humor because that builds camaraderie, that builds you know mutual understanding, et cetera. So I look specifically for that. Yeah. I love that. Um, Prakash, if you don't mind, um, there's some notifications that are coming through on the sound side. If you have any applications that are open that might be their own notifications, would you mind just closing those? At a, at a, I think everyone would appreciate it because we're in the ding, 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 ding. <laughs> are you able to hear them? I thought, I thought the systems would cancel them out. I wish. I wish. Um, technology gets us to places, but it doesn't get us everywhere. I loved when you talked about sense of humor in your team, right? Kind of the unification of that. Because that to me is just so, um, so integral. Um, and we've just lost Prakash here, folks, in just a moment. He'll get right back. Um, but I, I will say that what he was talking about from a team building perspective, from a sense of humor, from a, a, a place where you're building your team and you're kind of looking for that camaraderie and that diversity in the team, that's so important. That's so important because overall, one of the most critical aspects in team building, in security, is the ability to work together and be able to um, analyze everyone's views into the business and everyone's views into security. And 
then taking those in and, and really respecting that and then allowing those ideas to fester within the team to create different ways to do defense because we can't always work with the same school of thought when we know the system could be systematically broken because of it. So that's also very, very important. And you're back. So I was just summarizing everything you said. So we're, 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 we're good. Um, so here's the thing. I don't edit the show for everyone listening or watching. I don't. Um, I try to keep it as natural as it is. Um, because guess what? That's part of the conversation. Um, if you want a highly produced show, I suggest CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, CBS, Bloomberg. Um, if you want raw human communication, you come here. <laughs> and to everybody listening, sorry, uh, I don't know, some glitch. My browser windows all crashed while I was trying to get rid of the notifications. You want to tell me that a Windows machine just randomly crashed at a random time? Absolutely. You have, you have <laughs> just dropped the jaws of all thousands of people that listen to the show. But, but for this time, I can't blame Windows. It was uh, Chrome that crashed. So we blame Google. That's yeah, blame also Google. That, that's that's also not a surprise, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> that's also not a surprise, you know. Prakash, I want to take us back on track. I want to talk a little bit about CISO's leadership across the enterprise. You know, you grew up for for those who don't know, HSBC, one of the largest financial institutions on the planet. I mean, I think HSBC is in what a hundred and some odd countries globally. Sixty odd, yeah. Sixty sixty plus, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 60 plus. All right. So, you know, you come from that kind of organization where it's compliance, it's risk, it's regulation, it's audits. Um, and you look at how the role of the CISO is really supposed to kind of spread across. What do you think are some of the key aspects that a CISO needs to have when it comes to uh, enterprise leadership today? So I think the, um, some of the principles stay the same for anybody around the C-suite. Okay. You have to understand the business really well. You have to understand your customers and what matters to them really well. And in an organization that's in the supply side, you know, you have to understand your customer's customer. Um, so these kind of help you judge the materiality of the thing, of different events, different uh, facts as you go through them. And if you think about a CISO's role, it's predominantly as an advisor to the rest of the C-suite in terms of what matters, what doesn't, how to assess a particular risk, and what actions are most appropriate at that point in time. Panic um, is a common kind of consequence of uncertainty and lack of understanding and lack of clarity. And if you want to avoid panic, you have to have a good grasp of the business. And that gives you the judgment of what action actually makes sense versus not. So that ability to judge and that ability to understand, I think is critical for a CISO. The second part is um, as a CISO, you're never going to be really in a situation where you command a large part of the organization. You're going right. to be a fairly small part of the organization. So most of the results that you deliver to the firm are as a result of your ability to influence the rest of the firm. And there are many ways you have to influence people because the buttons that trigger a certain part of the team won't work for somebody else. And you have to understand what is important to them and speak in that language. 
and explain in that language. I think where cybersecurity doesn't work is when we when we try to explain it as something as a black art. It isn't a black art. At the end of the day, it is engineering. It is engineering discipline. And people who are in the engineering business will get what you're talking about anyway. If only you take the time to explain and say, this is why we do what we do. So time to explain is important. We're not worthy. We're not worthy, right? Because that's so true. I've been in so many conversations where, you know, someone will come after a very uh, 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 intense board meeting or executive leadership meeting and they'll go, they don't get secured. And we're like, so what'd you say? And you start to hear and you're like, you're making it sound clandestine, movie-esque, um, Hollywoody, and unattainable. We're not setting the right parameters and goals with our executive leadership to really deliver this out. And, and, and then we wonder why we strike out, right? Then we wonder why, um, you know, I, I will tell you one thing I disagree with you um, on just slightly, Prakash, and I think we're going to start to see the shift. And we're seeing it. I think it's the office of the CISO. I think a lot of big companies are starting to look at security and say, you know what? I need that CISO not to be under the CIO. I need him to be either under the chief risk officer or CEO or reporting directly to someone in the board, maybe the board audit committee, maybe maybe the board directly. And we need this person maybe to have some touch across the business, but we really need that person almost looking at the entire company at, you know, that 40,000 foot looking down rather than at, you know, the, the ground floor working it uh, because you can't see up as clearly as you can see from up down. Um, yeah. And I think we're going to see that transition. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be uh, everything in the business will, will, will end up at the CISO's desk to sign off on. You know, our wet dream for anyone who's a CISO is that any business decision ends up at our desk at some point and we go, yep, great. Uh, no, no. Uh, you know, but we don't want to do that either, right? We kind of want to, we always want to say yes, but, yes, but, and I, I constantly talk about that. But I think that's where we're going to see the office, the office of the CISO, I think is going to be the future of what we see. And yeah. the more companies start to adopt that model, and we're seeing that with the evolution of the BSO role and all these different roles within InfoSec and business that are starting to come under the CISO to really start bridging those gaps. And those are the fun roles, by the way. Like that to me is so much, I'd rather be doing that than being a CISO any day of the week. And, and you know, uh, that evolution into the office of the CISO being something that is cross business is, is a natural progression as businesses become more and more about technology and more and more about software. Invariably, you're trying to address technology risk for the organization. Right. And you try to address technology risk in a business that's predominantly dependent on that. Sooner or later, that is where it will land up. But if you look at most large organizations, the CISO role still sits under technology. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I agree with you. I'm saying the future, right? Yeah. The future is the office of the CISO. Um, and, and it'll have a robust team and the CISO will be almost like a head coach, right? Where you're you're kind of, you know, you're, you're picking the roster, you're setting the game plan, but you're not really on the field doing the game uh, during the game and so forth. So uh, there's that aspect. Let's talk a little bit about security. So you know what aspect you know you look at you know kind of your transition from finance to cloud. Um, 
And I typically, I'll say, what do you spend the most time on as a CISO? But you're in the cloud, so I really want us to spend about 15, 20 minutes talking about that here. Um, what are some of the things as kind of a CISO of a cloud organization, do you go, this is what we really need to be focused on so that our customers feel confident to use our services? So I think there are, there are three priorities in, in the main, you know, uh, because we provide tooling that our customers depend on uh, to build their software. And a large part of what they want to do is to build that software and release it at a much higher frequency than they've historically been used to. Correct. Priorities that drives for us are you to make sure as an organization, we are as secure as we can possibly be because our tooling um, you know, people only believe and, and we'll only have credibility if as an organization, we can set the highest benchmarks for security. The second is our own products, you know, have to have features in them that provide the guardrails um, for our customers to make sure that when they use the software, everything that goes through that pipeline, uh, you know, we can make security transparent for them. Uh -huh and their customers, et cetera. So that's the second priority we focused on. And the third one, like I said, is, you know, the world as we know it in software development is changing at a rapid pace. It will continue to change at that. You know, the mainstream uh, of industry in the economies are not really at that cutting edge of DevOps and DevSecOps, et cetera, that everybody likes to talk about. The tech industry has been talking about it for some time. But if you go to most traditional industries, they're just starting on that journey which means the, the transition that we will see in 80% of the economy that has nothing to do with technology over the next three to four years will be significant. And in CloudBees, what we're really focused on is, so what will the world look like in three years time when that happens, when the mainstream is deploying software 100 times a day, what will it look like? Therefore, what does, you know, what does our organization need to do from a security perspective to help our customers you know, make that journey make it well and, and actually end up in a really safe place at the end of it. Right. Cause that's, you know, your, your role today is what we call the modern, I call it the modern CISO role, right? And it's the modern CISO role because you're not really worried about the traditional aspects of security. Yeah. You've got to secure your internal business, but you've also got to be a business enabler to everything outside. And that creates a different set of skills. So when you look at kind of the, the, the challenges around security today when it comes to the shared responsibility model in the cloud, right? And with cloud providers and with SaaS providers and infrastructure and platform providers, what are some of the um, enhancements you think, or what are some of the effect? Let's start with this. I don't, I don't want to go, I don't, I, I, one thing I don't like to do on the show a lot, a lot of times is focus on negatives. So let's focus on, on some positives. The shared responsibility model, a good development overall within security. What I'm responsible for, what you're responsible for, it's crystal clear. It's in the contract. Here's what I'm in charge of. Here's what you're in charge of. How do you see that model developing further as we go along? I think that model will become much clearer. If, if you look at most, um, most of the users of the cloud who are not in the tech industry, their first um, assumption is that, oh, I put my stuff on the cloud. It must be safe. Right. Okay. That's like saying, I bought a house. It's got some doors. Of course, it must be safe. <laughs> you know, 
you have to understand that it's still your responsibility to make sure they're shut when you leave the home and they're locked when you're not around for some time, etc. So explaining it in tangible ways as a service provider to customers helps. It always comes down to education. So that shared responsibility model will pivot not only to making sure the guardrails are there and you know the capabilities and features that you have to provide as any SaaS provider are there, uh, but more towards educating people what their responsibilities are when they use your system. Okay, If you choose to drive off the road, uh, there will be a problem. So please stay on the road. And you have to explain to people how to identify hazards on the road and stay on the road safely, blah, blah. So I think that's where the shared thing will evolve. Um, it will become much more obvious in contractual agreements with people, both from our side and from the customer side, that we are very specific about who is accountable for what. Okay, And what we also have to remember is it's no longer a case of a relationship between one customer and one service provider. When you really look into it these days, the relationship is a series of customers all in a chain because what the end customer depends on as a vendor, that vendor depends on somebody else and that person depends on somebody else. And that's very, very true in terms of the cloud ecosystem that we are in. So we need to make sure that the end-to-end -end accountability across that piece is clearly understood by everybody. Okay, It's not enough to assume that somebody is going to do something. Right? So assumptions have to get clarified out and become very specific. You know, as, as we see cloud develop, right, from a security perspective, one of the things I um, um, it doesn't keep me awake at night, but it definitely gets me reading more books, doing a lot more research on is the multi-cloud environment, multi-different infrastructures and platforms across the cloud, where my SaaS provider could be 100% cloud-based using a completely different cloud provider than I am. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're using third-party tools to create integrations that create a series of uh, knots along the chain where stuff can get stuck. How do you start to demystify kind of that aspect of the supply chain of the cloud where it's multi-cloud environments using additional tools and more tools in order to really create some level of integration in order for services to be used and manipulated over time? I think we've got a long way to go to solve that level of transparency. Okay, there are, most organizations have a challenge trying to figure out what they have. <laughs> the kind of you know supply chain we're now talking about, which is how it will evolve you know, in, in the next few years, is you will need that level of transparency. And I, we, we don't have mature systems to deal with that, honestly. So trying to address what exists in your entire supply chain, who has access to that different, different things in your supply chain, how does data transform itself as it moves across boundaries in that supply chain? All of these are still very... Uh, early days in terms of us trying to make it objective, make it transparent, and more important, make the risk scoring of this objective. Okay, Because we still talk, if you really look at risk, uh, the articulation of risk, the understanding of risk, somewhere along the chain, it gets transformed into words in whichever language is appropriate at that, you know, in that particular customer or in country, et cetera. And 
engineering becomes prose, it becomes literature. And somewhere along the line, we start making assumptions as to what the impact is, what the likelihood is. And therefore, we have a certain view of what the risk score is. It needs to get a little bit more objective than that in terms of how we measure risk, how we communicate risk. Can we have a standard that we can create across the industry that can quantify risk a lot better and make it a little bit more objective so we can communicate it a lot better? Today, we try and explain the fact that we are safe, we are secure, etc., through questionnaires that run into hundreds of questions. Most of them answered in subjective prose. Okay. And somehow somebody on the other side makes sense of it and tries to get a sense of what you're trying to do and quantifies it as risk. We need to get better at how that ecosystem works. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think vendor risk management and our um, SIGs and risk management processes are broken. Yeah. And I mean completely broken. Um, you get a survey that wants you to answer a bunch of questions and they want you to detail stuff on a document that let's be real you and i wouldn't feel comfortable sharing our entire security strategy on any document going anywhere because well i haven't vetted you before you vetted me right and it becomes kind of the idea of mutual vetting and i think we, we, we really have to go down that path of what is mutual vetting what is your responsibility what is my responsibility kind of that shared responsibility model being the guideline to the questionnaire and then doing an evaluation of the integration. So understanding what data is going where, and if we know what data is going where, well now what's supporting that data on the back end, and what's supporting that data in transit. Yeah. Yeah. And then I if we take it myself, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, 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 and I think that's where, you know, I, I brought it up earlier, the office of the CISO, right, and the BISO role. But I think that's where you're going to start to see BISOs really enhance what they're trying to do is that idea of can I streamline a vendor risk management process to a point where it's 10 easy questions that help me quantify what we're trying to do together. So here you go, answer these, and they're not subjective, they're very objective. I'm trying to get to an a, a goal, right? So I'm not asking you, do you use a firewall? Yes, no, if yes, how do you configure? Stupid question, very subjective, right? It's um, what data are you getting, right? And it's got the type of data they're processing for you, right? PII, PCI, HIPAA, uh, uh, confidential business data, maybe, you know, uh, public data that really doesn't matter. Well, if you're processing public data that doesn't really matter, probably not going to spend a lot of time looking at, at how we integrate and, and, and what security controls you put in place. I just got to make sure, you know, you've got the right controls in place and that's it. So I'll send you a simple 50 question questionnaire to see your maturity and then make my decision. And, and in my questionnaire, I'm just checking your maturity to whereas if you're someone who I'm integrating with on a PCI or HIPAA perspective, right. And you're going to have a lot of different confidential in, in, in data well, now we're going to have a completely different conversation and we're going to look at contractually adding uh, uh, audits to, to that person or if there's any significant changes that defer from the fact sheet that we ask for that we need to be notified within a period of time that helps us, you know, re-identify anything that changes the risk profile per se. 
Yeah, and, and I guess the, you know, in, in terms of establishing that confidence in a chain of vendors, et cetera, it might be a new problem for us to solve, but there is a parallel in the real world. You know, it's called the food supply chain. It's called uh -huh. the pharmaceutical supply chain. They all have very similar problems in terms of verifying across from, from source through to, you know, consumer, verifying all the steps, making sure that there is controls are in place and being able to track it right through the system, establishing common terminology, a taxonomy that everybody understands, a way of articulating what's in something and what's the you know after effects or side effects of something, etc. These problems have been solved in other industries. I think we need to try and adapt what works <clears throat> for our industry and for software and the fluid nature of software um, and take some of those best practices and just morph them into what works for us. We don't need so, to reinvent everything from scratch. I agree with you. I just don't, I think that the food industry example is a good one, but the scale isn't. So with yeah. food industry, the scale is I've got a, uh, a farmer who has a farm and he grows. Then there's a logistics company that takes everything from the farm to a warehouse. Then there's an additional logistics company that takes it from that warehouse to wherever it's supposed to go. And then it hits the shelf or, you know, it's on an airplane or it's on a boat and it's going and there's a bunch of logistics companies along the way. And really that, that the scale of that could be two people, two companies, or it could be five or six, but really it, it's not the same software though. Um, and that vendor supply chain, let's be honest, in most organizations today, we have uh, triple, if not quadruple digits of vendors yeah. within our environment. So, yeah. so it's not one, two or three. And every one of those vendors probably has triple uh, digit vendors that support them supporting us. And so now it becomes, how do you look down across? Because to me, the our, our supply chain in, in cyber looks like a pyramid scheme. Uh, <laughs> one of those businesses, right? You just, you, you go to the guy and you go, what are you doing? Great. Uh, bring me three people. And they bring you three. And then those three bring you three more. And those nine now bring you three more. Now you're at 27, right? And it just keeps growing um, and growing and growing. And it's endless, Right, because that supply chain never starts somewhere. Right, there's always someone supporting someone, supporting someone, yeah. supporting someone. I don't know that there's a uh, a supply chain where you go, "Hey, we're the final stop uh, in software." I don't know that that exists. Or even if it does exist, it's so many layers deep that it's right. probably not visible to you anyway. Okay, so I think we, you know all, all that is true. The, the scale, uh, both in terms of depth and breadth of our supply chains is significantly different, which is why it's important, again, I think, to standardize a lot of the terminology that we use, a lot of the way we measure things, et cetera. Because if for that scale of breadth and depth, we, as an industry, try to continue as we are continuing now, it's going to be quite difficult to try and articulate um, the end benefit of everything that we do. And if you look at a, a challenge that we have in cybersecurity, in most large, large organizations is to objectively state the value of what all these protections, what all these things bring, okay? It's very obvious how much gets spent on cybersecurity. 
it's less obvious that people understand what is the uh, the benefit, the realizable, tangible benefit day in, day out that that investment provides them, the value that it provides the business and therefore the value that it provides its end customers. So it's imperative we kind of find ways to solve uh, solve this challenge of how do we articulate the entirety of the supply chain in a manner that is easy to understand for someone who's not in cybersecurity day in, day out. Yeah, that's... Um... Uh, th that's such a great point and such a good one, right? How do you articulate that for someone who isn't insecure? How to articulate that to the business? And I think that's the biggest challenge that I even go through day to day, right? How do I articulate the challenges of our supply chain without looking like, you know, the, the, the department of no, or the sky is falling yeah. or use a buzzword like zero trust, right? Um, because all of those, the business will look at you at that point, And I think the relationships that you build um, we'll, we'll, we'll reconsider that relationship because they go, why are you making things a little bit more difficult? And what we're trying to understand is assess the risk. Um, that's why I like the CMMC model that the DOD did across their supply chain within the DOD and kind of the classification levels of different vendors. And I'm trying to copy it now within our organization, kind of going like, well, if the DOD thinks it's good, not saying they know everything and I'm not saying they do everything correct, but they've obviously put some brain power and they've tried to simplify this problem. So could what could we learn from it and what could we take into our organizations and copy over? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the, it's easier to adopt and then adapt it to an organization rather than try to reinvent this ground up for every specific organization. Because on one hand, it's going to take too long. And the second, you don't know whether it will work. After all that effort, you don't know whether it'll work. If you see a working model, it's easier to adopt a working model and then just tailor it to the organization you need. Yeah. Indeed. So we're at the we're almost out of time, folks. I want to get to my favorite part of the show with Prakash, my CISO Insight Round, where we get to learn a little bit more about you. And I'll start off by um, talking about my buzzword graveyard. Okay. If there's one buzzword you would bury in my graveyard. What buzzword would that be, sir? You said it a few minutes ago. Zero trust. <laughs> Security is all about trust. It's about, you know, it's about building trust. It's about building confidence. Yet the most spoken about word is, well, that's zero. I don't trust anyone. I understand the premise behind zero trust and what we're trying to communicate. But I don't know if it's a very helpful term to go up to a board of directors and say, what we should really focus on in security is zero trust. Okay. Who am I not trusting? Who am I? You know, my whole business is about building trust. So can we find a more positive word to say something that says this builds trust? Because we can you can take the negative connotation, convert it into positive and say what we are doing really is building trust. We are verifying, we're validating, we are confident at any point in time that we know that the device that's talking to me, the person that's accessing my systems, the information that they are accessing is all legit. That's what zero trust actually does. The technology, that's what the technology does. We've given it this phrase, which is catchy. I, I, I kind of accept the fact that it's catchy. But that's one of my, um, what do you say? Less favorite words. Pet peeves, um, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I've, I'm, I'm a big zero trust detractor. I don't, I don't like zero trust. I think it has a negative connotation to people. When I see it in internal uh, company communications, I cringe. 
um, because I feel like it delivers the wrong message to the team. It impacts culture directly. And you talked about culture early on in the show, you know, the sense of humor that you look for, the can I have a beer with this person? Can they be diverse enough to really challenge our school of thought? And you, you, you put zero trust and you kind of throw all that out the door, right? It's almost like you're saying, I trust none of you guys. And, and yeah. it, it's kind of counter culture. We say, you know, we got to have um, teams that collaborate, teams that trust each other, teams that do this, teams that do that. And then we throw into the mix that. But the security team thinks the best way to solve all our problems is zero trust. Don't trust anyone. Uh, that's yeah. not how human beings work. You know, human success is always based on trust. Indeed. Let's talk about one technology that will change the way we do security going forward. What do you think that is? Quantum, yeah, no, no, not really. Uh, you know, I, I think the the quantum may may not. Yes, you know, there's lots of lots of ifs, buts, maybes in the future. The applicability of it to day to day life is still to be determined. So it's some way out there. The I think you know in the medium term, and I know we we always underestimate change over a long term and and overestimate what will change in the short term, right? In the short term, what we need to focus on are things that make the tooling that we have more effective. If we look at most large organizations, the answer to security always is, can we go buy the next shiny tool that somebody sold us? Or, you know, I saw this thing in, in The Economist or saw it in some Wall Street Journal. Can we go do that? Can we go buy this? Can we go buy that? Um, you talked about the buzzword graveyard. Um, there is a tool graveyard in most organizations. Buy things and you implement them. Nobody really knows whether they work or not. Um, human beings still continue to be the weakest, uh, you know, point, uh, weakest factor. So anything that makes humans more effective at being safe and secure and and understanding what they need to do versus what they don't need to worry about, I think is something that will make a material difference to the world of software. I'm not sure there's I, any one technology that does that at this point. I, I, I agree with your quantum. I think one thing that I've been reading a lot about is the idea of quantum AI. Yeah. Um, quantum AI to me would probably be revolutionary. But again, that's 15, 20 years down the road. Um, okay. Even the AI that we use today, and they say AI is narrow AI. It's very much kind of a, um, uh, it's, it's machine learning on steroids or cocaine whatever example anyone wants to use. In most cases, it's just machine learning. You know, that's my other right. buzzword. It was a toss up between zero trust and AI. It seems in the industry yeah. today, you stick AI either as a prefix or as a suffix, and somehow some magic will happen. Uh, there is no magic to any of this, um, you know, and the more as a security industry, we start talking in terms of tangibles rather than some black art, I think we, we will be understood better. Uh, and when people start understanding what we're talking about and taking the precautions that we ask them to take, overall organizations will be a lot more secure than us trying to pretend somehow that this is something they won't understand and they won't get. Very, very true. Uh, what's the book you're currently reading? Uh, I'm reading a book called Getting There uh, by Gillian Siegel. Um, it's an my, my reading tastes are very eclectic. I don't tend to go after any particular genre. In the main, I, I read non uh, I read nonfiction books. Um, don't have too much time for uh, fiction books these days. And 
I bump into things. I, I <laughs> like to browse and then, you know, I bumped into this book. It's a brilliant book. Um, it's short vintage. Uh, uh, I don't know if vintage is the right word. Short uh, write-ups about famous people and how they got there. You know, people like uh, Warren Buffett and Michael Bloomberg that everybody would have heard of and you know, how they got to where they got to, what is their advice and things like that. But also from a very eclectic collection of people like Hans Zimmer, you know, in my normal day-to-day -day life, I wouldn't bump into somebody like Hans Zimmer. Um, but how they think, and it's very different thought process that goes on. And I like that. I like that about the book. And, you know, I'm about three quarters of the way through. Um, if there are people out there who like reading eclectic stuff, it's, it's a brilliant book. It's really well written. Um, yeah, getting there, I, 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 I'll make sure to get that because that's that's a stellar recommendation. Um, are you streaming anything right now? Are you watching anything on TV? You're a TV person watching a movie or a, or a TV show? Uh, I'm not much of a movie person. Um, I'm more short episodes of things, um, mainly British humor. Uh, I absolutely love British humor. Going back from the 70s to today, I think there's an unbroken chain of absolutely brilliant stuff. You can, you can sit there and watch it for a lifetime and you won't run out. Uh, so I do a lot of that. Um, in terms of uh, streaming, I tend to go back to, you know, the, uh, the two specific genres that most people, I think, gravitate towards. Uh, I like thrillers and things like that, so I watch that. Uh, I'm currently watching the West Wing for probably, I don't know for how many it's time, it must be the third or fourth time. I find it, um, I find it interesting. Uh, the US political scene always is interesting for anybody who's outside the US. Uh, I don't know how it is when you're in, in the middle of it all. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> we don't have enough time on the show yeah. to discuss that's, that's that topic. Of, you know, that's true of any country, though. If you're not in the middle of it, when you watch it from afar, it's very intriguing how things actually pan out and, and what's going on and stuff like that. So that's my current streaming thing that I'm watching. So so I, I will I will return the favor and tell you that watching a uh, the British Parliament in debate and their witty rhetoric and the cheers that go on in the chamber is one of my favorite things to watch. Yeah. It's literally, I missed it because I know they haven't done it since COVID, but I can't wait for the day when all of them put on their wigs and go back inside uh, the chambers and start with their witty. Cause it's literally a stand up comedy routine. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, I think the, that, and the debate forum that they set up actually is, very interesting to watch about how they use words, how they use, you know, polite words to put you down pretty dramatically. Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 edge it's of how English can be actually used. <laughs> I love it. So what's your favorite music, Prakash? What do you listen to the most? I think for most people, the, the favorite music tends to be what you grew up with. I grew up in India. I grew up in, you know, uh, in Maharashtra, which is in Western India. So Hindi music still, is my favorite uh, and i lost touch with what is current hindi music and i don't like too much of it so i'm still stuck in the 70s 80s uh i think know. that's all of us though like we grow up to one music and then we look at the new genres of it and we'll go this is garbage right like this is horrible what is this stuff um i feel the same exact way um so one final question here as uh, we wrap up today's episode is um, 
What's one thing you took away from SolarWinds? I think the, the biggest takeaway for me is um, what we once thought was safe, which is, you know, development environments. Yeah, don't matter. They're always safe. They're internal. They're not exposed to anything. Test environments are always safe. I think all those presumptions that pervaded how technology environments were designed have just gone out of the window. The second thing is uh, what becomes very, very evident from solar winds is uh, Paper-based checks of security are not really that useful. You know, process checks, right. of, are you safe, are not really that useful. Uh, trust and verify has to now become pretty much the de facto rule for everything. You trust the suppliers that you provide, uh, that you work with, but you have to verify it as well because they can get blindsided. It's not that they intentionally you know, tried to do something weird or omitted something, etc. It's just that they can get blindsided. So at every point, you've got to trust your people you work with, but you have to verify as well. Yeah. Indeed. Prakash, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show with us today. I really appreciate it. You've been a gem and a wealth of knowledge. Again, um, another episode where I get intellectually intrigued by uh, great leaders within our industry. How can people follow you, Prakash? What's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, I will. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm a bit busy in terms of trying to get uh, up to speed within CloudBees with everything that we need to do, but I'm trying to do more and more of these kind of sessions. I will get to a point where I start uh, writing some articles and things like that where we can share our journey uh, and other people can benefit from the journey. And these these kind of conversations really help, James. It's, it's, it's fantastic to chat to you. Um, so thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Folks, um, go check out Prakash. I think you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, if nothing else, uh, but go catch the latest uh, of his journey as probably will be uh, pioneering some of the next stage of security within the cloud industry. So uh, that's it for us here for this week's CISO Talk. We'll be back with a lot more next week, but make sure you check out our other channel, the CyberHub Podcast. We post daily content there, and most of it is live, folks, 9 a.m. Monday through Thursday, um, Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. I give you the practitioner brief so you can tune in there. Until then, friends, thanks so much for being part of today's show. Thanks so much for watching. Make sure to subscribe and see you next time. Cheers. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.